Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, live from the first London Podcast Festival, I'm talking to journalist Hadley Freeman about what she learned from 1980s movies in her book, Life Moves Pretty Fast. Guardian writer Hadley Freeman brings us her personalised guide to American movies from the 1980s, why they are brilliant, what they mean to her, and how they influence movie making forever. Growing up in New York in the 1980s, Hadley learned everything she knows from films like Pretty in Pink, The Breakfast Club, Top Gun, The Princess Bride, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Beverly Hills Cop and When Harry Met Sally. And we'll be talking about how the changes between movies then and movies today say so much about pop culture and society's changing expectations of women, young people, masculinity, class and art, and explains why Pretty in Pink and Ghostbusters should be put on school celebrities immediately. So, Hadley, what were you doing there? Where were you? What was going on in the 1980s for you? Uh, not very much, because I was a child. So I was born in 1978 um, on the Upper East Side in New York, which 
any of you who've seen Woody Allen movies, you're basically like, that, that's where I grew up, where all those movies were made. So I lived an incredibly sheltered, uh, protected life with my parents. My mom worked for Sesame Street, and that was pretty much the childhood she wanted to provide for me. And the only TV I was allowed to watch was TV without adverts, which means Sesame Street in America, um, and videos. Um, so I watched MJ musicals up until I was about six years old, and then she allowed me to start going to the video store myself. And the first movie I rented was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And that was pretty much the end of Sesame Street for me. And I just became addicted to renting these videos because I wasn't allowed to watch TV. So I was just renting all these videos all the time. So all the John Hughes films, you know, Princess Bride, all the ones that you mentioned there, Back to the Future. And just I'm still as obsessed with them as I was back then. Lots of those films, when seen with today's eyes, are mm. quite... You know, the swearing, smoking, violence, sexism. Yeah. How did you get away with it? So, well, I got away with it by sticking very safely just to John Hughes for the first few years. So that kind of eased my mother in. Um, but they can be quite racy as well. Well, John Hughes, well, it depends which ones. So, yeah. like, the John Hughes teen films are incredibly conservative in a funny sort of way. There's no sex. There's very little swearing. Um, there's very little smoking. I mean, those kids are incredibly conservative. You look at Ferris Bueller's Day Off, for example, and it's about three teenagers who skip school. And what do those teenagers do when they skip school? They go to a museum. <laughs> <laughs> they go to a French restaurant. Nobody has ever done no in one's history. A, and they go to a stock exchange. Like, that, that's what they do. <laughs> So it wasn't exactly living on the edge. So I wasn't renting risky business, for example. Mm -hmm. And it did take me a long time to convince my mother to let me watch Dirty Dancing. And I think I had to do something like The Dishes for a week in order to be allowed to watch Dirty Dancing. So my mom, my parents were way more worried about me seeing things that were too sexy than too sweary. Or too, they, definitely no violence. So I didn't grow, like for a lot of people, I think 80s movies means things like what we were talking about backstage, things like Commando and stuff. Yeah. And that was definitely not my 80s movie experience. My 80s movies were the comedies and my 80s movies were the teen movies. So things that were safe for a very protected 10-year-old child to watch. In researching this, I've been thinking back on the, um, the 80s movies of my childhood, and there were things like Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Yeah. And I was thinking of movies, movies would come into my head, and I would think, oh, okay, Predator. Well, yes. that must be the early 90s, because you don't mention that. Oh, no, it is the <laughs> it's 80s. The 80s. It's the 80s. Like, you know, no. Die Hard, that must, be the, that must be 1990, because no, no, no. I think you mentioned it, mentioned it slightly, but, oh, no, that is, that is in the 1980s, the and, and those were definitely my... For the touchstone 80s film. I mean, this book is definitely, it's like my experience of 80s movies. And I, of course, I, you know, I have to include things like Top Gun, I'm sorry, Top Gun, which is like part of my soul, um, and Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. But those kind of action movies, I didn't get to watch until really the 90s, until I was old enough to basically cross the street on my own and could go to the video shop on my own. Before that, it was things like Princess Bride. The other thing that I noticed, thought this immediately after we spoke about this the last time, because we've done a version of this conversation before, and... There's no Spielberg in this book at no, all. He's I a know. huge figure. I know, I know. Um, well, I mean, there's a bit of E.T., but the thing is, like, mm. I, I actually found E.T. terrifying as a child. Did, I mean, did anybody else find that alien completely terrifying? Especially when he's dying and he turns white, <laughs> which is, like, still one of the scariest scenes in cinema to me, alongside the opening scene of the original Ghostbusters film with the, with the librarian. Um, that's to me, is what counts as scary. Um, there, it, there really isn't much Spielberg, which is weird. I mean, for me, Spielberg is more like the 70s and stuff, which mm -hmm. is what I, how I think of him. But I, like, I try to think what Spielberg was even doing in the 80s. He wasn't yeah. doing so Apart from E.T., e. I do think, yeah. although the 80s is, we think of all of these sort of classic 80s movies, I think 
the eighties was like a fallow period. Yeah. So you're right. You've got yeah. you know Jaws and classic yeah, well, in the seventies. Yes, that's right. Or, anyway, or you know Indiana Jones. Yeah. So there's love Indiana Jones. But um, you're right. It's not his era. The eighties no. is not his era. The eighties is really the era of basically it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger on one side and John Hughes on the other, and that's mm. kind of how I see it. As well as then like in the middle things like Woody Allen and Nora Ephron and those people coming up. So those are the movies that I loved. Arnold Schwarzenegger I didn't get to for a while, and to be honest, I still haven't seen some of them. But um, when Harry met Sally, you can ask me anything about that. So as this was the eighties, and you've already hinted at this would all have been on VHS. Did yes, you have any sort of, of cinematic experience? Oh well, some. I mean, very. So I, I think one of the first movies I ever went to actually was The Princess Bride, and I remember going to see it. And I was so little, you know, the cinema seats they fold down. I remember getting stuck like that with my legs sticking straight up, like I was doing a yoga pose. But mainly it was on VHS and Betamax, even because I am mm. actually that old. So I still think when I think of these movies, I think of the VHS covers. Like, yeah. I still think of like taking them out of the sleeves and stuff. It's incredibly sentimental. I don't mean to be so nostalgic about this, but um, so for me it was mainly watching at home and you know, waiting, you know, waiting for my parents to come home from work or whatever, and watching these videos. So let's get into some of the movies you talk about. So the first one, and as I've just explained what my 80s experience was like, certainly Dirty Dancing. This is a movie that I would have ran a hundred miles to have, what, like to have not man. seen at the time. Like every single straight man on the um, and, and have never subsequently seen sure. until very recently when I was when you were made for to. this interview. Yes. Um, this is going to be the case for a number of these films <laughs> that we talk about. Um, but I, I'm absolutely happy to put my hand up and say Dirty Dancing was superb. Thank I really you. loved it. Can you spread the word among your fellow straight men? Because I feel like <laughs> they all think that this is just a movie about a girl perving over Patrick Swayze's pecs. And there's definitely that element in it. But it is a genuinely good, interesting film, It's right? a good film, yeah. yeah. It's, really it's not film. what I expected, no. which... Well, the image that I have in my head of those films in the 80s that were like something like Footloose or yeah. something, which were very particularly... Marketed and Greece, I'd sort of included in that as well. A film that I've never really liked, it's earlier. But yeah, films that are definitely aimed at not me. Yes. Dirty Dancing is just a, it's just a drama. It's not well. Aimed. Dirty Dancing is especially not aimed at you. It's yeah. aimed even less at you than Footloose and Grease. I mean, Grease, you've got the John Travolta character, so that's for the guys in the audience, and the way Olivia Newton-John's character is for the girls in the audience. And Footloose, I mean, the star is Kevin Bacon. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a boy's story. Footloose. It's this guy. I mean, this this just goes to show how lame eighties movies are in terms of rebellion. I mean, the whole point of that movie is he just wants to put on a prom. And like, <laughs> <laughs> that's the rebel with a cause. Um, but but he is a boy and it's his story and he's trying to get the girl so like Footloose is kind of for guys but Dirty Dancing is entirely for women and when I started researching this <laughs> researching i.e. watching the films again um, what great research <laughs> my hardcore research I mean Glenn Greenwald has nothing on me um, and so the new Edward Snowden right here and um, so I called I, I tracked down the woman who wrote the film uh, Eleanor Bergstein and I called her up and I said, you know, the thing that's so funny about this film is that there's so much more in it than needs to be. It really could have just been one of those movies they make now, like Step Up, one of those kind of dance movies with kids just throwing themselves around and people wearing very few clothes. And actually, it's this whole movie is about the importance of abortion. It's about sort of Jewish snobbery against working class Catholic people, which is all in it. It's about this fading world of the Catskills. It's like this whole kind of crazy world. The beginning of the civil rights, you get a little bit in that movie. And it just seems to me that this is actually a pro-choice message wrapped up in this kind of bubblegum teen film. And she was really quiet, and I thought, oh my God, I've like totally freaked this poor woman out, and she's now going to like call the police and get you know, a restraining order or something. And she went, 
I've been waiting 30 years for someone to say that to me. And I just thought, I, like, I knew it was also, and what she wanted to do in the 80s, she was this feminist, married to a Harvard professor, and she felt that, she looked at young women around her, and she felt that they were taking feminism for granted, and particularly um, abortion, you know, access to abortion for granted. I mean, this was the 80s, the era of Reagan, you know, Nancy Reagan being just say no, all the rest of it. And so she wanted to make a movie that reminded young women about how lucky they are to have access to abortion. And so that's actually what the movie is about. I mean, the whole, I'm, I was, I'm going to take it for granted that, I'm going to say, 60% of you have seen this film. And well, why don't we say, who who's seen Dancing seen this in film? this room? That's probably more than 60%. More than 60%. Okay, who hasn't? Is it the remaining men? Yes. Um, so, um, so the plot is put into motion by Patrick Swayze's dance partner gets pregnant and has to go have an illegal abortion. And she goes like to this horrible backstreet abortionist and ends up physically you know, in, in danger and nearly dies. And so she can't dance, obviously, with, with Patrick Swayze that night at the, at the summer camp because they're like the dance performers there. And so Jennifer Grey steps in, and that's how their romance starts. And the whole thing continues, and you hear so much more about this woman who had this terrible illegal abortion. She was on a butcher's table. He had rusty instruments. Like, they really get graphically into it. And Jennifer Grey's father is a doctor, and he has to come and save her life. And he puts his own career in jeopardy by helping this woman. Because if a doctor was found back then to have helped a woman who'd had an illegal abortion, he would get his medical license taken. So it's like a major, major part of this film that this has happened. And you keep seeing this woman throughout the film, and she's getting better and better. And then the last scene you see her, and she's like, oh, and he says I can have children again. So like, it's like she does not let you forget it. And that's what the whole film was about. And no one noticed it. The studio didn't care. It was made independently. The only people who complained about it was Noxema Cream, which is like Clearasil in America, because they wanted to advertise in it. They wanted to have product placement in it. And they saw the film right before it came out, and they were like, it's a bit like, what's all this abortion stuff? And so the producer said to Eleanor, maybe we could chop it out? And she went, oh, gee, well, we can't really, because the entire movie hinges on it, which she did deliberately. And they went, oh, right, okay, well, never mind. And they got it out. And you compare that to movies now that have abortion, and it's such a different story. Like, it's amazing. So at first, I started to think about this years ago when I wrote about abortion in movies today for The Guardian. Um, and it was when Juno came out, and also Knocked Up came out, I think a few months later. And this other movie came out, Waitress. And in each of those three movies, a female character gets pregnant unexpectedly. And whenever anyone suggests that she have an abortion, like, it's horrible. Like, those people who suggest abortions are horrible. Um, and Juno in particular, where this 15-year-old girl gets pregnant. I'm sure most of you have seen Juno at this point. 15-year-old girl played by Ellen Page gets pregnant. She decides to have an abortion. She walks to the clinic. She sees a, a classmate there you know, protesting, going, this is terrible, you're killing your baby, your baby has fingernails. And she goes, oh, my baby has fingernails. And she goes into the clinic, and it's this disgusting place. It's, like, you know, dirty. There's, like, the receptionist kind of giving a blowjob to a, a lollipop. I'm not exaggerating, like, licking in this really lascivious way. The people there are just, like, quite trashy, quite tacky, like, babies crawling around. Like, it's just, like, something out of, like, a Trump information ad. It's, like, it's so bonkers. And she goes, oh, my God, I can't do this. And so she leaves, and she calls her best friend and goes, I couldn't do it. My baby has fingernails. And her friend goes, your baby has fingernails? Well, you can't possibly have an abortion. Like, damn, my baby has fingernails. Um, and this is an independent movie made by liberal people, written by a woman, written by Diablo Cody, like aimed 
aimed at liberal audiences. And, this, and everyone was just like, yeah, fine, that's cool. And Knocked Up came out, which I'm sure also a lot of you have seen, the Judd Apatow comedy in which Catherine Hagel gets unexpectedly pregnant on a one-night stand the night before she's starting her dream job. And it's like she doesn't even consider having an abortion, which I, I suspect most 22-year-olds in Los Angeles probably would. And the only person who suggests it is her mother, who goes, just get it sorted, and then you can have a real baby. And Catherine Hagel reels back, going, oh, that's a terrible thing to say, which is supposed to be what the audience is going, oh, what a terrible thing to say, a real baby. And she's like, no, of course I'm having, of course I'm having this baby with someone who I slept with once, whose name I can't remember, who I hate, and who physically <laughs> repulses me, and I'm about to start a job TV presenting. Of course I'm having this baby. And it's like, I'm not saying everyone should have abortions. I have two children myself. Like, I, I am pro-children. But, like, if you're going to not have an abortion in a movie, if a woman's going to decide not to have an abortion, it should be for realistic reasons. It should not be because, like, oh, abortions are evil. And it should not be like, oh, my baby has fingernails. Like, you shouldn't be swayed by a 14-year-old protester in front of a clinic. Like, that's insane, and that's an insane message to send to teenage girls. But there are no movies, no movies today, that show positive depictions of abortion. Like, there was one that came out a year and a half ago called Obvious Child, uh, called Obvious Child, which was an independent movie with Jenny Slate, which I really, really liked, and I highly recommend to all of you, where a girl gets pregnant after a one-night stand, and she decides to have an abortion. But the whole movie is about this decision. Like, this, it's like this you know, very torturous decision, and of course it is a big decision to make, and it's hard. And one of the last scenes is her, like, lying on the gurney with a tear going down her face, but she has it done. But it's like the whole movie. And the fact is, one in three women will know somebody's got an abortion and probably have, or had an abortion themselves. And it doesn't have to be the whole story. Like, it's not the whole story of a woman's life. And when you look at other movies in the 80s that show abortions, it's not just Dirty Dancing. It's like things like Fame and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's really just a moment in the film, and the woman goes on and has a perfectly happy life. She's not traumatized forever. It doesn't affect her for the rest of her life. Like, she just, you know, has to have it done. It's not something you particularly choose to do on a sunny day, but, like, you know, if you have to have it done, you get it done, done, and then she goes on. Like, it's not the whole plot of the film. Whereas now, it's like so conservative the way they treat abortion. It just makes me furious. And you look at Dirty Dancing and you think, this could never happen now. And in fact, it definitely couldn't happen now because Hollywood studios inevitably came to Eleanor Bergstein recently saying, you'll never guess, they want to do a remake of Dirty Dancing like they do of every single 80s movie now. But they said, we're going to take out the abortion. And she said no. And she refused it. And they said, well, we, it's non-negotiable. And she went, well, too bad. So she took the money, walked away, and instead put it on as the West End musical, which I'm sure all of you have seen in Leicester Square, and has made literally half a billion dollars out of that by amping, and she amped up the abortion plot. If you go see it, like, it's way more. Does it have a song? It's like, it's like a whole thing. It's got a little dance. Uh, it's a huge thing in it. And they really amp up the risks that everyone was taking, helping this woman, how, you know, Patrick Swayze's character, Johnny Castle, could have gone to prison, the father could have gone to prison, baby could have gone to prison. And it's made half a billion dollars. But still, like, movies today are just like, <laughs> no, 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 illegal, scary stuff. It's, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy how conservative it's gotten. Well, before we move on from Dirty Dancing, I just want to take a decide and talk about <clears throat> so the guy, the actor who, um, who gets the woman pregnant oh, and yeah. sort of dumps her. Amazing. Um, again, something that people wouldn't be giving credit for nowadays in the film. His whole character mm. is basically described when he, you know, he says something like, you know, Oh, I'm reading this book. It's great, and it's it's the Fountainhead, <laughs> yeah. and, they, and they, you know, they don't have to explain that. But he's Max Cantor, the yeah. actor that played him. He has an incredible yeah. off-screen story. So sad. I mean, he's this 
guy who grew up very near where I grew up in New York, son of a musical conductor. And he decided he, he was sick of movies after making this film. And, you know, really, I mean, once you've peaked with Dirty Dancing, the only way is down, so I don't really blame him for quitting at that point. And he became an investigative reporter. And he got very involved in the story down the Lower East Side of Manhattan then, which was then very kind of dangerous, about this kind of creepy, like, possible cannibal cult. And he died while investigating it. He, like, started taking drugs with them to get involved, and he died. But nobody's sure, and he said at the time, they're going to kill me because he was close to exposing them. And it's still a story that actually this cannibal cult it killed him with heroin. But it's this sort of crazy story about what happened to this character mm. because it's it's so it's so strange from what you know what his character is in the movie. And at the same time, he is quite evil in the movie. So, so but it's such a horrible, sad story. That's like a fascinating backstory to what happened. Like, I don't know. It was one of the many fascinating backstories of that film. So you mentioned the John Hughes movies. Yes. And the next one I want to talk about is Pretty in Pink, which again is one of those films that I'd never managed yes. to see at no, the time. Never wanted to see watched, at all. Watched in... <laughs> oh, no, that's not fair, because I did, I, I'd seen most of the other... I've seen the Breakfast Club. But there's the a time, reason I've you seen... didn't see that one. I mean, because it is the girls' one. It's well, the, I guess. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, maybe it's, the it's, title. It's, yeah. But, yeah. But, um, Pretty in Pink, again, watching that in preparation for this... Hated it. Yeah. You hated it, really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's... But I hated it not because of the film, not because Molly Ringwald's great, Harry Dean Stanton's great. The film is brilliant. There's this awful friend zone guy who's her best friend. Oh, Yeah, yeah, Who is just unbearable. Every time he's on screen, it's awful. I know. It's so weird. So, again, okay, let's do this. How many of you have seen Pretty in Pink before I get too much into this? A fewer. So how many of you haven't? All the men. Um, <laughs> and a few women. So I'll try to explain this really quickly. So it's Molly Ringwald plays Andy, who's like a working class girl. Uh, and her best friend is Ducky, played by John Cryer, who is desperately in love with her, but she does not feel that way about him. And she falls for the rich boy called, called Blaine. Um, I know, I know. Ducky goes, Blaine? Is that a kitchen of clients? Blaine? Um, played by Andrew McCarthy. And it's their love triangle and also their class triangle because all of John Hughes' films are always about... So, well, all of his teen films are about social class. I'm not going to say National Lampoon's Vacation is about class, but, <laughs> but um, all of his teen films are definitely about social class. And it, it's a problem in the film because originally it was supposed to be that Andy ends up with Ducky. And that's how the film was originally made. And they showed this to teen audiences at screenings and they were all just like, this sucks. She has to end up with Blaine. And the problem is they just cast it in this way that made it impossible because originally it was going to be Molly Ringwald and then Robert Downey Jr. as Ducky and Charlie Sheen as Blaine which then makes you of course want her to end up with Ducky I mean you know Robert Downey Jr. you know for whatever whatever anybody thinks about, he is he no one does appealing nerds like Robert Downey Jr. he was so good at that in the 80s he was very handsome and Charlie Sheen you know always just looked like a douche. Like, let's be honest about it. Like, nobody wants their friend to end up with Charlie Sheen. Like, so, so, of course, you want Molly Ringwald to go off with Robbie Downey Jr. in the end. But they cast John Cryer, and there are many good things to say about John Cryer. For example, he managed to work with Charlie Sheen for many years and come out alive. But, like, you don't, like he's not the romantic hero at the end of the film. He's just not. So they have to have it end with with Blaine. And the other problem is, is that he's much... <laughs> John Cryer, his, his need for Andy comes across as much whinier than you can imagine Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Sort of. Robert Downey Jr. would have been like self-deprecating and funny and charming. And John Cryer just comes across as a bit whiny and verging on men's rights activist, if yeah. we're going to go there. <laughs> well, I wonder if in the 1980s that would have been as apparent as it is no. now, because he absolutely comes across yeah. as a winding yeah. men's rights activist. Yeah, and like the kind of guy who'd be like, I 
I put in all those hours with her, why won't she kiss me? Like those yeah. kind of crazy <laughs> men who write things like that. Um, and it, it w- I don't think it would have, but I think just girls did not fancy him. Is the problem from poor old John Cryer. I'm sorry to say that to him. Um, Molly Ringwald gave an interview a few years ago <laughs> when she tried to excuse the end of the film, which doesn't really make sense because they just refilmed the end of the film many months later and have her end up, sorry, spoiler alert for a movie made 30 years earlier, um, end up with Blaine. And, she, and Ducky inexplicably scores with some hot chick. With, the with the amazing blonde girl who ended up being the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Anyway, long story. <laughs> um, and, she, and so Bonnie will try to explain this nonsensical ending, going, I actually, I always thought Ducky was gay, which seems, <laughs> seems kind of bogus. And John Cryer took this so badly <laughs> and like reacted exactly the way you think Ducky would. Just like, just because I was shy doesn't make me gay. <laughs> just like... All right, people, tone down the weird 80s homophobia. Take it back a few decades. Um, so I think it ended, it ended how it had to end. And also, like, I think she should end with, with Blaine because I speak as a girl who never got the guy she wanted in high school. I was the one with the unrequited crushes all the time. And you think, good, Andy should get the hot guy. Why shouldn't the funny, weird girl who dresses strangely get the hot guy in a movie for once? Fine, and that's what I like about that movie. But I totally agree. It doesn't really make sense. And Ducky is not terrific in that film. <laughs> the other, um, the other key aspect of that film is that it's you know it's highlighted all the way through. She's obviously from a working class background with a single dad, Harry and Stanton, um, and she makes her own clothes. And yes. she's going to make her yeah. own dress for the prom. The worst dress. But yeah, there's no way. The there's no time. way of getting away from even on a perspective of looking back at the eighties and eighties fashion. But Andy is a terrible designer. Oh, totally. totally, totally. <laughs> but that's also kind of the point, mm. I think. Like, when you look at who she's talking to at school, like, when people go on about 80s fashion, like, you don't see that actually in John Hughes' films. It's the girls who are mean to her, who are wearing, mm. like, the rah-rah skirts and the crop tops and, like, the, you know, the ponytails on the side and all that crazy 80s stuff. Andy just dresses like a crazy person. But that's kind of the point. It's supposed to be she does her own thing. She's not following the crowd. And, you know, if, you know, if the price of looking like a mental person is, you know, is what you have to pay for being original, then that's price worth paying, basically. If the price of being original means you dress like a crazy person, then great. Um, so that's kind of John Hughes's point. Is she's supposed to look bonkers. Um, and what's so funny about it is the whole way through, she's going up about how she wants to be a fashion designer. And mm. you're all just like... <laughs> really I mean she takes her best friend's prom dress Iona's prom dress and like cuts the shoulders out and like makes a polo neck now I don't like if, try to imagine this so it's like pink dress with like shoulders cut out here sleeves polo neck like a white skirt coming out here like it's the most crazy thing you've ever seen but I think that is sort of the point like there's no other way to explain and when I interviewed Molly Ringwald for the book um, like she like even she said when she opened that dress she was just like that is the most, uh, that's the pig ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe I've got to wear this on screen. So they all knew this when they were making it. So it's, it's not about 80s fashion. I think people look at John Hughes' movies and go, oh, that's crazy 80s fashion. No, it's like, no, that's just crazy. Like, <laughs> Molly Ringwald herself is interesting as an actress because she was sort of Hughes' muse yeah. for all of those films. And yeah. then he just, they basically fall out. Well, they fell out because she refused to be in Some Kind of Wonderful, which was the last teen film he made. Because uh, she wanted to grow up. 
And he took this rejection so badly that he never spoke to her again. And in fact, he stopped speaking to her during the making of Pretty in Pink. They had been like best friends in a way that sounds a bit dodgy when I try to describe it, but I genuinely believe it wasn't dodgy. Like she was a teenager. He was about 33, married with kids. And he used to take her and Anthony Michael Hall, who's in Weird Science, which I'm sure the boys here have seen, um, and, um, and Breakfast Club. And he would take them out to movies. He'd take them to gigs. He introduced them to music, like all the music in John Hughes's films, like that. that's all from John Hughes. He loved those kind of 80s indie bands. And they both pulled away. So um, Anthony Michael Hall refused to be in Ferris Bueller. And Molly Ringwald turned down some kind of wonderful, because they both wanted to grow up. And he never spoke to, the game, spoke to them again, and he stopped making 80s teen films entirely. Um, now, he actually did pretty well out of that, because he then made Home Alone. So, you know, he was crying into his bank account. But he never really made movies as heartfelt as those teen films. He never really got over that heartbreak. And Matthew Broderick said this, too, when I interviewed him for the book as well. Like, once he pulled away from John Hughes, he never really forgave you. And they all sort of had tiny reconciliations with him towards the end. Like, he sent, Molly Ringwald told me he sent her a bunch of flowers towards the end of her life and just congratulating her on a play or something that she'd done. And it was his little reconciliation, but he was basically Peter Pan in that he created this Neverland around him and he had these kids in, but once you left Neverland, that was it. You're never going back and you can never speak to Peter Pan again. And it kind of broke his heart. All of his friends say that it really broke his heart. And when she left him, his new muse was um, John Candy. And he, who he had an incredibly close relationship with. And they made one of my favorite 80s movies, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which I don't talk so much about in the book, actually. But, um, and then when John Candy died, that was it for him. His heart really broke. He never made any more movies. And he died just a couple of years later. Um, so it's a, it's a very sad story. I mean, those movies feel so heartfelt because for John Hughes, those, those feelings were right under the skin. Like, he really felt them. And when those kids left him, like, it was like his world ended in a funny sort of way. Sort of explains Ducky a bit. I mean, I think he is a lot of those characters. I mean, he, he definitely is the Ducky character, and he definitely is Anthony Michaels Hall's character in Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. And Ferris Bueller is his fantasy of what his childhood could have been like, because he grew up lower working class in the middle class area, and, which is why he's so obsessed with class in his movies. And Ferris Bueller is the only hero he ever made who is clearly like upper middle class and is popular, has the hot girl, you know, has the friends. You know? And all, the message of all John Hughes' films is that you have to be rich to be popular in American high school. And speaking as someone who went to American school, I can say, sadly, that is weirdly true in a lot of them. It is very weirdly classist and money-obsessed. And Ferris is kind of like his fancy. Ferris Bueller is clearly ducky. Like, they were written at the same time and played by actors who are basically identical. Um, but Ferris is rich, his parents love him, and he has a happier life. Well, yeah, let's move on to that. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall's agent presumably sacked at that, at that point because that's the worst career decision ever, I think. <laughs> um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I think probably of all of these films, personally, is you know the sort of standalone, absolute... Perfection. Classic. Yeah. Um, and will remain so. But before we talk about it, I mean, I want to just rant about high school movies briefly for a moment sure. because I've never really I mean they're probably not as popular in the UK as they are in America but they're very popular over here as well American high school films I've never really understood it it seems a bit <laughs> weird and a bit creepy first of all all the actors are in their 30s sure. playing high school children definitely which is odd yes the obsession with school as the best years of your life and clearly it isn't is yeah. also like weirdly odd yeah and this is a classic example of that because Ferris Bueller is like the coolest kid in the world. Yeah. But he's not as cool as anybody that can 
smoke and vote and have sex, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Anybody in the world. Well, However, yes. it's, yeah, this film is, is, is superb. And as you, you just mentioned that it was made at the same time. John Hughes made it, yeah. wrote it. It's, wrote. It's, the, the two productions were pretty much overlapping yeah. in the same year. And they look so different. The look yeah. of both films. They're directed by different people, is the first mm-hmm. thing. Um, Pretty in Pink was directed by Howard Deutsch, who then went on to marry Leah Thompson, who is the mother in Back to the Future. Fascinating fact for you. And they met while making Some Kind of Wonderful together, which is a very sweet story. Uh, and John Hughes directed um, Ferris. John Hughes didn't direct very often. He directed Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, well, one of the things I was going to say, I think, is it sort of stands out as a classic, is it doesn't have that look of an 80s film. Yes, that's right. It's much brighter. Mm. It's um, got a sheet. It's glossier because it's a fantasy. I mean, it's the craziest movie. There's so many, there are so many incredibly enjoyable theories on the internet about what is Ferris Bueller actually about. And there is a very popular theory that Ferris is actually a figment of Cameron's imagination. And he's just like Cameron's kind of secret um, alter ego. Or I can't even think, what is that J.K. Rowling thing? Your Patronus. It's like, he's basically Cameron's Patronus. Um, and that's not, that's not how I read it at all. But I do think Ferris Bueller, it is Cameron's story. Cameron's the one who goes through the emotional trajectory. Cameron's the one who changes at the end. Cameron's the one who's got stuff at risk, namely the car. Um, whereas Ferris has nothing at risk. And Ferris is the same at the end as he is at the beginning. He learns nothing throughout the film, except that he's awesome. And um, I think, so to me, I've always thought this movie is just seen through Cameron's eyes. So as much as, and, and, this, and like everybody had this friend at school and after school for whom everything seemed to come easy. Like everyone has this friend who you idealize, you know, who you think is the one who always gets the girl, who like, you know, can, you know, study for a test an hour before and get an A or whatever. And that is Ferris to Cameron. So I don't think we're seeing Ferris the truth and we're seeing him through Cameron's eyes. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the, the class aspect of this film then. Because you mm-hmm. said it's, it's, these are rich kids yeah. in this film. Yeah. It's not, so Pretty in Pink is very much explicitly saying there's a class struggle here in the whole high I school mean, system. I they mean, li- they live literally on the wrong side of the yeah. tracks. They, she literally has to cross the train tracks to get home. I mean, Fer- you know, John Hughes is not a subtle man. But, <laughs> but Ferris is still, it's still about the class system yes. in, a, in perhaps yeah. a, a more subtle way. So what's going on there? So, well, it's Cameron who's the rich one and Ferris who's upper middle class. I mean, Ferris lives in the kind of house that basically Macaulay Culkin then lives in, in Home Alone. This kind of big suburban American houses that look insane from here. They look enormous with like the two cars. But actually in America it's kind of just middle class because America there's so much land you can have these big houses in the middle of Chicago. And um, so it's still saying, he's still saying that Cameron because he's richer is unhappier. I mean John Hughes always has this point that the richer you are the unhappier you are. So Cameron's parents are horrible. He's, you know, he lives in a museum. Um, all, all that kind of stuff. So the whole point is that Cameron is miserable because his parents have so much money and therefore they love money more than him. And he has to destroy that in order to get his parents to love him. But I just want to say about the high school thing. I do think the thing with American high school movies is, like, Americans know that these movies are ridiculous. And they're only showing a certain type of high school. They're showing suburban Mm -hmm. public schools, which is, you know, where a lot of kids go in America. It's actually not where I went. I I went to school in Manhattan, and I also went to a private school. So my school experience looked nothing like that. And to be honest, for most kids, their schools look nothing like that. Anybody who goes to school, for example, in Los Angeles, you go to a big public school in Los Angeles, it's different from going to school out in the suburbs. But what America loves to do is mythologize itself to the movies. So I would say that what the Westerns are pre-1960s 
to American cinema is what high school is, yeah. post-1960s. You have these real genres, this idea that this means something, this period of time, being in high school. You have the, you know, the different cliques or whatever. In the same way in the Western movies, it's like, this means something. We're defining America through the Western, yeah. and here you have the saloon, and here you have the gun-toting bad guy, and here you have the good guy. This is exactly the same. They're just using different tropes, and they've just moved the Western to the high school, and they're just telling people, this, is, you know, this, this says something about America, these high schools. This says something about the American experience. When for most people, I mean, I'm speaking as someone who didn't, hasn't been in high school for 20 years, you forget school as soon as you go. Like, don't you? You go to college or you go to work. Um, so they know that it's ridiculous, and it's definitely not supposed to be representative of any reality, as Heather's then completely satirized just two years after John Hughes stopped doing this. Let's move on to... Let's have a look. What should we talk about next? When Harry Met Sally oh, yes. and the, the rom-com, mm. which, again, they're still around. Oh, barely. But, yeah, oh, but barely. rom-coms are something that, you know, we just think nowadays, they're just always terrible. Terrible, terrible. Um, and the 80s is, is a, a sort of classic era of, of the rom-com. So, well, tell us why you like how, When Harry Met Sally so much, first of all, and then we'll talk about what went wrong with the... I mean, it's, I feel almost like I'm just stating the obvious with this. I mean, obviously, everyone loves When Harry Met Sally. It's got to be in everybody's top ten movies, surely. Um, the thing that's so brilliant about it is, is that it cares as much about the men as the women. And it's as sympathetic to both sides. And it shows the flaws on both sides. And that is so rare with a rom-com when they're either aimed at men, in which case they're like things like Something About Mary or Ben Stiller, or women, in which case they're now... I mean, they became, you know, Kate Hudson or Drew Barrymore. But... When Harry Met Sally, it doesn't, underest- it doesn't underestimate its audience, which almost all rom-coms started to do post the mid-1990s. And it's not simplistic, and it feels so real, and every line is so true, and there's no kind of awkward machination of the plot. Nobody's behaving like a crazy person. And what normally rom-coms do is they make men behave like dicks, and women behave like crazy people. And it doesn't matter who they're aimed at, but that's, like, that's how they are. Men are horrible, and women are insane. And when I'm inside, it doesn't do that. It's just like, here are two people. And sometimes it takes people 13 years to get together. And that's not because they actually secretly hate each other. It's because they're humans, and that's how life goes. And it's so funny along the way, and it's also so clever how it parallels that love story with the story of Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher as their friends, which is unbelievably hilarious. It's a movie for grown-ups, which Mm. you don't get a lot of these days, but you got loads of in the 80s, actually. Um, and the 70s, of course, too. But in the 80s, you definitely got Mooser Grounds, and now we just don't see those. Um, I think it even goes further than that with, with rom-coms, in that not only is it just like the men are assholes and yeah. the women are crazy, but the, the, the situations in them are basically like... Well, you mentioned um, uh, something about Mary, which is like a classic example of that, of that the, 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 there's this woman who is it three men are yeah. chasing and they're all basically stalking they're all horrible i know they're and all like literally stalking yeah her. i know i know and this is often the way weirdly with rom-coms when you actually take a step back and look you think this is illegal actually <laughs> i mean e- even movies i love like say anything which may or may or may not have time to speak about which i love so much and i hope all of you will see or have seen cameron crowe john cusack ioni sky i mean even that when ioni sky dumps john cusack and he keeps coming back and like holding a radio a boombox outside when he's like it's a little bit stalkery that's a, that's a tiny bit creepy you're playing the song you had sex to underneath her window after she's dumped you it's a bit icky I, let's put it in the icky category maybe um but definitely like there's something about mary is so horrible and so many of these movies are like that i mean i would like you look at movies okay so rom-coms i would say this is what happened to the rom-com basically so 
Rom-coms started really coming up in the 80s again with things like When Harry Met Sally. Then the 90s, they exploded with Pretty Woman. So Pretty Woman, the blockbuster that killed everything. Then you had this whole slew of mighty rom-coms starring Drew Barrymore, things like The Wedding Singer and Never Been Kissed. And then studios were like, huh, we've been giving all these movies to the women. What about the guys? And it turned around and it became these unbelievably appalling, creepy Ben Stiller films like Along Came Polly and obviously There's Something About Mary. And they became more and more um, insulting to the audiences and more and more insulting to both sexes and sort of culminated with the worst movie ever made um, called The Unbelievable Truth um, starring Gerard Butler and Catherine Hagel. Hold yourselves back. That's, all you, that, um, that's really all you need to say there. But. Which is like the worst thing you'll ever see in your life. Like it's literally like my eyes were bleeding when I came out of the cinema. Um, and at that point, everyone's like, oh, they're crap. Like nobody wants to see this. It's like nobody wants to see them because you're making them badly. Like if When Harry Met Sally came out today, which it wouldn't, but if it did, it'd be a huge hit. Everybody would be like, oh, this is like Woody Allen, but better. Um, and they'd be right. Um, but nobody makes that movie. They'd be like, this isn't sexy. You know, they're old. It's boring. 13 years. It takes 13 years. What the hell? There's one sex scene. What are you talking about? So it just wouldn't get made today. You mentioned that When Harry Met Sally should be definitely in everybody's top 10, but your favourite film mm. is Ghostbusters. Yes. <laughs> um, tell us why. I love Ghostbusters. I mean, there's a lot of nostalgia, obviously, there, in that it should, it, Ghostbusters to me is really a love story to New York in the 80s, and obviously I grew up in New York in the 80s, and so what I see on screen is basically my childhood, with like you know the garbage on the streets, and like the cars kind of whizzing around the corners, and everyone being really rude, and no one batting an eye at these four guys jogging along with nuclear reactors on their backs while smoking cigarettes. Like Everything about it is like, so adorable. Um, but I really love it because it's a movie that manages to be about male friendship, without either demonizing women or um, insulting the men. And when the men do behave badly, as Bill Murray does a lot in that movie, he is called up on it um, by often Sigourney Weaver, to be honest, which I really like. Uh, what the male friendship story in it comes from, um, the fact that it was written by Dan Aykroyd for his best friend, John Belushi, who was this big um, comedian actor, I'm sure you know, you've all known as Bluto and stuff like that in the 70s comedies. And as he was writing, he was writing in his apartment in New York, and as he was writing a line for Venkman, who was going to be played by Belushi, um, he got a call from L.A. saying that Belushi had been found dead in, um, I think it was Chateau Marmont, um, or Beverly Hills Hotel, one of the two, of a drugs overdose. And he, the whole movie is, is really, I mean, yeah, obviously he was devastated, and he still got Belushi into the film through the character of Slimer, because Belushi used to go through hotel lobbies and eat food off room service trays, and so that's what Slimer is. And you feel this real sense of fondness between particularly the three original Ghostbusters, so Aykroyd, Ramis, and Belushi, uh, sorry, Aykroyd, Ramis, and Murray, um, who were all friends and knew each other from Saturday Night Live days. And you really get that sense of camaraderie, and also that sense of... I mean, when you know that the whole thing is about Belushi, really, which the movie is kind of a lot about Belushi, um, there's a real kind of sense of the importance of them being friends. Like, they have a real friendship between them, which I find quite moving, and they're really fond of each other, and they're funny with each other, but it's not that kind of Apatow bromance thing. It's done in almost a kind of grown-up way. And when you have to say the Ghostbusters look more grown-up than many movies today, I mean, that seems like a real sad state of affairs. Um, <laughs> Uh, so there, and also, I mean, come on, it's just so funny that movie. It's so funny. There's not a line in that movie that isn't funny. Every line is hilarious. You just want to quote every single line in that all the day long. That might just be me. <laughs> the last time we spoke, the new Ghostbusters film yes. hadn't been released yet, so you haven't seen it. And it, when it came out, you wrote a, a pretty positive mm -hmm. review of it. Mm -hmm. Now the dust settled a bit. 
Before we talk about the film, let's let's ask that you know what's now becoming a sort of eternal question: What is wrong with people on the internet? Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Like I mean, honestly, like you know, like I said, I love Ghostbusters. Um, I you know I wasn't so thrilled when I heard they were making remaking all my favorite '80s movies. But you know what? They're not destroying my childhood. If your destroy if your childhood is destroyed by someone with a vagina getting into a Ghostbusters uniform, your childhood has so many problems with it. I, I mean, I would like to. <laughs> help your childhood. I, but I don't think shouting at Melissa McCarthy on the internet is going to help your childhood. Like, you don't want to make generalizations about, uh, you know, men are idiots or whatever, but God, some of you men on the internet don't make it easy for us. Um, people, they're crazy. I, I, there's, there, there's no other way to say it. There's people, some people have so little in their lives, and I'm saying this as someone who's written a whole damn book about 80s movies. Some people have so little in their lives that they define their whole lives by 80s pop culture. And like, you know, I feel sympathy with these people but come like these people are insane they are insane and you know and i went to this movie i went to, i went to review it for the guardian and i'm gonna be honest i didn't love it i did i like i liked it i didn't love it i mean i came out thinking that felt a bit pointless like why would you do that but i'm glad they did it because i know why they did it. paul feig who directed it who also made bridesmaids in the heat wants to prove to hollywood that women can carry big films and he has done that this movie hasn't done as well as his other films but it's a good point to make. I mean, rather than just randomly remaking or rebooting, you know, Jurassic Park or whatever, whatever the crap they turn out now. Like, fine, they're making a point that women can carry action comedies. Great. Um, I didn't, it, there's no, I mean, it's not going to be a classic in the way the first one is. And I'm not just saying that through nostalgia bias. Like, it's just not as funny. It's not as original. Um, nice try. Don't really see the point. The other thing, you know, that obviously comes into your mind when you think about these people making a fuss about their childhoods being ruined yeah, by Ghostbusters being remade. Christ. It's have yeah. none of these people seen Ghostbusters too. I know, but that's. <laughs> I mean, like that's the thing. Like that, nobody seems bothered about that. That's what's so weird. And I, I'm telling you this for free. Like the Paul Feig Ghostbusters is better than Ghostbusters too. Like. Oh, is that my cue to stop talking? No, no, no. Um, we're a long way off. Okay. Ghostbusters 2, I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's ridiculous. It involves a talking painting. And that's kind of all you need to know about Ghostbusters 2. Um, so, yeah, the oversensitivity is, I mean, let's be honest, they're just using it as an excuse mm-hmm. for misogyny. And then it became an excuse for racism against Leslie Jones, but all in the name of defending Ghostbusters. And what became so hilarious is when then poor Dan Aykroyd, poor Dan Aykroyd, he's probably like 65, 68 at this point, like tweeted like a little gentle grandfather support going really excited about the new Ghostbusters and these people were screaming out who the fuck are you you ruined my child. I was like he wrote the movie you a moron it's like these people are like it's a new it's a new world where fans feel they have proprietorship over movies and the whole thing with like Comic Con and all that where fans can tell J.J. Abrams how, they, how he should do Star Wars or how, and in some cases that's great kind of interaction but when it tips over into fans feeling like they own the product and no one else can touch it and only they understand it only they're pure enough to really understand the true meaning of this original movie then you think sir you need to go outside and have a walk in the sunshine and maybe get away from the computer <laughs> um, another genre of films which I think it's pretty much over. There's, we could probably think of some examples that have been made since the 80s and 90s. And again, one film that I still, unfortunately, haven't managed to bring myself to watch Let since we guess. Uh, Which one do you think it is? Uh, I'm going to guess Steel Magnolias. You're right, it is Steel Magnolias. <laughs> <laughs> However, I have nothing against the genre of what 
used to be called women's films per I don't se. Hate Lots women. of those other films. I just don't want to watch them. Lots of those other films I have seen. <laughs> Fried Green Tomatoes is a film that I enjoy very much. You would like Steel Magnolias. I probably then. would, yeah. but I just haven't got around to it. However, that film, and the women's film is something that has existed you know, forever in the 50s. Yeah, there yeah, were films yeah, for sure. Definitely made. But the, you know, there was, there's ones we can all think of from the 80s, oh, yeah. which were very definite. You know, a cast of 10 big name women in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of your, your mum and your sisters and your aunts would all go together to see these films. Good night out. And again, these films just don't seem to, they don't don't seem to happen anymore. Like, I was trying to think of the last one. And the last one I could probably think of is something like Mamma Mia or something. The Help. The, the Help, help good, would be, yeah, would very, be the very, last very one. good one. Yeah. But The Help, um, first of all, The Help is about Hollywood's favourite storyline, which is white people solve racism, yeah. um, which is always a winner. <laughs> and the average age in that movie, I think, is 32, whereas the average age in Steel Magnolias is about 57, which is amazing and brilliant. And also, quite, I mean, who... I mean, I don't, I'm going to assume that not many people here have seen Steel Magnolias, but like, I, like, take it from me. You would rather watch Steel Magnolias a thousand times than The Help twice. Like, I just promise you. I promise you. That, I mean, Steel Magnolias is so funny. It's like so, so funny. Like, you're looking at me like you don't believe me. No, it's no, I so don't. I will funny. make a point I of mean, watching it. Who doesn't want to watch Dolly Parton and Shirley MacLaine and Olympia Dukakis and Sally Field, like Daryl Hannah? Like, they're so funny in this movie. Um, and the other great 80s you know, women's movies, obviously, Beaches, which I'm going to assume a lot of people here have seen, and fewer people, Terms of Endearment, which is also hilarious and all of you should see. Um, and they absolutely do not make movies like that anymore. So why? I mean, it's still, this is still half the population. Why do yes. they assume there's not an audience? And the majority of cinema goers, yeah. in fact, with yes. 60% women is women. But it's because, so the reason all of this has changed um, is that by the end of the 80s, the big Hollywood studios were all bought up by conglomerates. Um, so things like Viacom and you know water companies and stuff. So rather than being run by people who love movies, they're being run by companies to make money. And I'm not saying that 80s Hollywood was all about like the benevolent giving art to the people. Obviously, 80s Hollywood wanted to make money. But now these studios are being run by people who don't have very much interest in movies themselves. And um, they started doing these things where they divide audiences up into quadrants. So it's like men, women, teenage boys, teenage girls. And they want to make movies that hit as many quadrants as possible. And the theory is still, and it has been for the past 20 years, that men will go to movie, that women will go to movies starring men, but men won't go to movies starring women. So therefore, movies starring men will get both men and women. But movies starring women will just get women. So that's not much. And teenage girls will go see movies about teenage boys, but teenage boys won't go see movies about teenage girls. So that's why you have loads of superhero movies and stuff. And when you do have girls in movies, they're action and there are other, there are other boys in there. So Hunger Games was the outlier. But that was considered that had enough violence in order to bring yeah, it's in teenagers. Killing. It's got killing. So therefore that could bring in the teenage boys. And the other big change that happened is in the 80s, 80% of an audience, uh, when a movie, would, a movie would be made by Hollywood, and 80% of its takings would come from America. 20% would come from overseas. Quite a, few, quite a bit, really, from England and France. Now when a movie is made, 80% of its takings come from overseas. So it's entirely flipped. And a lot of that is mainly from China, a bit from Russia some from India. And the theory is that audiences there don't want to see women, they don't want to see teenage girls, they don't want to see sex, and they don't want complicated dialogue that's too hard to translate, because you know it's very hard to translate when Harry met Sally for you know, a Chinese rural audience. But it's not hard to translate loads of special effects and shooting, which is why there's so many superhero movies now, because they're all literally made for China. Um, and it's also why you don't get positive depictions of abortion anymore. And it's why you don't get discussions about American class system anymore. Because they're like, nobody gives a damn about that in Russia. 
So you don't, you've lost the specificity of these movies when they would really be about Chicago. All of John Hughes' films are about Chicago. When people think of Chicago, they think of Ferris Bueller running through the you know, museum and stuff. Um, and now all movies are kind of in some sort of bland, unspecified Los Angeles, bland, unspecified New York. Um, and they're all just about explosions and violence. Sex is the other thing that went. No more romantic, loving depictions of sex like you get in Say Anything. What you get instead is lots of violence. So you think of the big teen franchises now, in the past 15 years, that would be Twilight, um, Hunger Games, and to a certain extent Harry Potter. And those movies are not about sex. They do not have sex. Any positive depictions of eroticism, no. I mean, in fact, in Twilight, she, the girl is at risk of dying from having sex. And in fact, starts being eaten from within by her vampire baby. I mean, that's how bad sex is now. But there is loads and loads of violence and special effects in those movies because that scene is fine to celibacy. So that's why, if you're wondering, why don't they make movies like they did before? It, but I don't want to sound like an old codger sitting on the porch when I ask that. There is actually a reason you're not an old codger sitting on the porch. The reason is the entire movie making industry has changed in the past 30 years right one last thing from me before we uh, before we move on to ask some questions from the audience and uh, not a specific film this time but a career mm. um again it seems quite, quite odd looking back from this point thinking of his his latter work but the by far the biggest star mm. of the 1980s was eddie murphy my hero yes what happened? I love Eddie Murphy so much. I know some people are trying not to laugh. Like, I really love Eddie Murphy. It's so sad. Like, I'm obsessed. I, I was absolutely obsessed I'm, with Eddie Murphy I, I in the 1980s. I still am obsessed with Eddie Murphy. He's, he's so amazing. And when you watch his 80s movies again, you're just like, how were we lucky enough to live in this time? Like, he's so funny. He's so charismatic. He's just the best thing on screen you've ever seen. And what happened was, it's very sad. So I interviewed John Landis for the book. So I should say also I've interviewed lots of 80s people in this book. Like it's not just me yammering on like it has been right now. So it's all that people who made these movies are in the book. So I interviewed John Landis, who directed um, Eddie Murphy in Trading Places and Coming to America, two of the most incredible films that he made in the 80s. And he said when he made, when he made Trading Places, he was like this young 22-year-old kid. He'd only really made another, uh, he'd made it 48 hours and he'd been on Saturday Night Live. And he was so excited and he was so positive by the time he came to coming to america he was jaded he was bored he felt himself already becoming dated and already being kind of pushed aside and eddie murphy well you have to understand about eddie murphy in order to really appreciate him is he he was the biggest star of the 80s but it's hard to remember how unbelievably racist 80s hollywood was at that point and the way to remember is if you look at 48 hours in which he co-starred with nick nolte and Eddie is very much the second tier. He's the criminal who joins up with Nick Nolte's gruff cop to help him crack a crime. And Nick Nolte's cop is supposed to be gruff. He's supposed to be rough around the edges, all that kind of stuff. And the way he shows this is by being unbelievably racist to Eddie Murphy throughout the whole film, calling him watermelon, spear chucker, other words I'm definitely not allowed to say as a Guardian writer. Like, like, like so unbelievable. And you're kind of watching this like, and yes... He's supposed to be rough around the edges, but charming. Like, he's not a bad guy for saying it. You're not supposed to hate him for saying that. And by the end of the movie, when Eddie has proved, he's not just another black guy or whatever the hell he's supposed to be proving. He's actually a guy who can help solve crimes. Nick Nolte's like, yeah, I shouldn't have called you a spear chucker. And everyone's like, oh, that old twinkly-eyed codger. Like, so, like, that scene is like a charming character element that he kind of comes to. It's like, whoa, Nick Nolte took the real step there. Um, it, like that, that, and that was, seems totally acceptable. And the only reason, like Eddie Murphy said in an interview later, oh, yeah, everyone was thought, like he said a few years later after that, he said everyone thought Nick Nolte was so racist. But, you know, the fact is, like, I'm seen on an equal level, so it's not like he's punching down. The truth is, 
Eddie Murphy's only on an equal level in that movie because he's Eddie Murphy. Like, he's so charismatic, he was able to lift that character up here to be on equal level with Magnolia. The fact is, that character is really written to be down here. He's like the sidekick. He's like that poor little Asian kid in Temple of Doom, really. Like, that, that is basically Eddie Murphy's character in 48 Hours. Um, and also, let's think of Temple of Doom, if you really want to think of how racist 80s movies were. Um, so... So that's the only, so the only reason it doesn't look like Nick Nolte's punching down is because Eddie Murphy was so charismatic in that character that he was able to bring himself up. So he looked on eye level, and that was amazing. Like it was amazing that he did that. And what he did then next is something that almost no African American actor has been able to do since. He was then cast in a role that was specifically written for a white actor. So it was Beverly Hills Cop, and that was written. Hold on to your seats for Mickey Rourke. <laughs> um, and when that fell through, they then cast even better Sylvester Stallone. Then he left, and then um, the producers were like, you know, like Don, uh, Don Simpson and uh, God, Brokheimer. Thank you, Brokheimer. God, you wouldn't think I'd written a book, would you? Um, <laughs> Don Simpson and Brokheimer were like, you know what? Let's actually cast Eddie Murphy. And so they bring in Eddie Murphy to carry this movie. And the only, only other time that's happened since is Morgan Freeman in um, Shawshank Redemption. Like that character, when you read the original stories, is supposed to be a white Irish guy, which is why he's called Red. And then they cast Morgan Freeman. That's the only time that's happened since. And Eddie Murphy did that repeatedly over and over. He was cast in roles that were written for white actors because he was so undeniably like more talented than everybody else there. And that horrible cliche, that horrible truism, which is still true, which is in order for an African-American person, particularly in America, to succeed, they have to be a thousand times better than the white people around them. I mean, Eddie Murphy was a million times better than everybody else. So in The Golden Child, that was written for Mel Gibson. Um, and they cast Eddie Murphy. But the thing they changed with those roles um, is that they then took out any sex. So you never see Eddie Murphy having any kind of sexual effects. Or sexual, you know, he's not, he's not seen as sexually attractive. In Beverly Hills Cop. He doesn't sleep with anybody. He doesn't have a girlfriend. There's nothing like Golden Child. He gets off with the woman, but you don't really see it. And it's like quickly covered up. It's like nothing. I mean, he has to in that movie. They can't get around that. And also, she's not white, which also makes it more acceptable in that film. You never see him with a white woman. So Beverly Hills Cop, I mean, that's a, a great example there because, you know, he, sort of, he has a relationship with a woman who's yes. an old friend an from, old home. from home. And who's not his sister or anything. No, no, no. And, and who's following him around all the time at and night. There's and there's a like, scene where she's basically sprawling on, on the his bed. Hotel, and she's like just kind of waiting, going, Axel, what are we doing tonight? And he's just kind of looking over the desk, going, I think we've got to go to this you know, warehouse and stuff. But he's supposed to be this cocky, hilarious, young, hip. I mean, like, his character should then be sleeping with her. But they couldn't do that. This was seen as too threatening to white audiences, particularly white male audiences, for a black man to have this kind of obviously sexual effect on white women, or really even any woman. So, like, even at the end of Trading Places, when they suddenly bust in a, a, um, a girlfriend for him, obviously they suddenly bust in this random black woman. Like, they can't ever have him having an, a, you know, an interracial relationship. And I'm not saying I'm dying to see Eddie Murphy getting off with loads of white women in movies, but it's very, very obvious how nervous studio bosses were about this. They couldn't have him have sex on screen and if he did get off with anybody in the very few movies they allowed this she had to be black like those were the rules since we talked about this before i've noticed it everywhere in films of that era and just a a couple of weeks ago after gene wilder died yeah i was watching a few of his films stir crazy is a film that when i was a kid i absolutely adored i mean it hasn't aged well but whatever regardless of that sadly no richard Pryor films have (laughs) aged but this is this is it's really interesting to see that in that there's Richard Pryor, there's Gene Wilder. Richard Pryor is obviously less cooler, attractive. <laughs> be, be, you know, oh, you think less attractive. I, I was I was going to say more attractive, cooler, funnier, 
in that film, in the role that he plays. Yeah. And yet, bizarrely, Gene Wilder is the romantic oh, lead no, sorry, in that I film. Meant, sorry, I meant Richard Pryor's the more attractive. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I was yeah that, that is what, yeah, that sorry, is what I meant. Sorry. So Gene yes. Wilder is, there's, is the you know, he has the yeah. main relationship in the yeah. film. But also, whenever they go into a cafe, he's like looking at you know, the waitress and stuff. And he's clearly the guy that is sexual. Yeah. And Richard Pryor it's is not. asexual. Totally and it's insane. It's insane. And also totally illogical, really. Yes. I mean, when you know about their real personal lives, you know, yeah. that really doesn't make any sense. But like the comparison with Richard Pryor is really interesting because Eddie kind of took Richard Pryor's place. He literally took his place in 48 yeah. Hours. Richard Pryor had to back out. Eddie took his place and his career went like that. And he took over from Richard Pryor, as Eddie said at the time, as being like Hollywood's like the black guy. Like there was only allowed to be one at a time, apparently, at that point. And kind of, it's not much better now, let's be honest. Um, but he was able to box out of the role of just being the black guy. Like, he then got to carry movies in a way that Richard Pryor never did, and he was cast in roles that were written for white actors. Um, and, you know, and Richard Pryor was never able to do that because Eddie Murphy just was so much more charismatic than anyone on screen, and really anyone since on screen. No one's ever been able to beat Eddie Murphy's 80s for me. Well, I think on that point, let's um, hand it over to the audience for questions. Now, we've got some roving microphones because we are recording. So, has anybody got a question for Adley? Thanks. Um, is Big just wrong? Oh, my God. Big is so wrong on so many levels. It's an amazing movie to watch now. I mean, it is about... He's supposed to be 13 in it, isn't he? 13-year-old boy who then, like, is living with this 32-year-old woman for three months and having sex. It's crazy. So I, had, I went off and interviewed Tom Hanks for the paper, but I was also writing the book at the same time. And it was for Captain Phillips or something. And then we were chatting, chatting, and at the end I had to say to him, I've got to ask you about Big, Tom, please. Like, it's a bit... It's a bit pedophile, isn't it? I mean, it's a little... It's a basically a movie about pedophilia, right? And he was like, oh, no, no, no. I was like, it's a bit weird. I mean, that boy is 13. And, like, he has sex with this woman for three months. And then she, like, watches him go back home at the end, turn into a 13-year-old boy, and it's like, oh, <laughs> Aww. Isn't that lovely? Aww. <laughs> and Tom Hanks, Mr. America, Mr., you know, James Stewart of our time, finally admitted... It's a bit weird. And I was like, it's totally weird. But what's really weird is you think, okay, what happened after like he went home? Like, wh- how did that fall out? Because everyone knows Josh Baskin as this guy who was working in an office in New York. I mean, they would notice he hadn't turned up for work the next day. His apartment, what happened with that? I mean, people are somehow going to put together the fact that there's a kid, Josh Baskin, who was kidnapped in the suburbs, and there's a grown-up, Josh Baskin, working in America, suddenly disapp- uh, in New York, who suddenly disappeared. And the- when he disappeared, the kid turns back up. So this guy was probably the kidnapper. So what the hell was going on there? So well, we need to find him. He must have had a social security number in order to get paid. I mean, not, like the more you think about that movie, you think, Jesus, there was some scandal when that came through. Or did the girlfriend then get sent to prison for being a massive pedophile? Like, who knows? I mean, that movie, I love that movie, but you don't want to think too deeply about what happens after the closing credits. <laughs> Well, on that depressing point, I think we'll, uh, enjoy your we'll Saturday. Um, I think in the uh, little blurb I read out at the beginning, I completely forgot to include Hadley's book, Life oh, yeah. Moves Pretty Fast, which you can't help but notice there was a big pile of on the way in. So if you, if you buy one of those, no doubt Hadley will um, happily sign it for you. And you may also have noticed a massive pile of Little Atoms magazines, which if you, uh, if you don't already own, you should definitely get. Definitely get. Um, so I've been Neil Denny, but if you would please put your hands together for Hadley Freeman.
You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.